Today, I'm joined by Professor Martin Bunzel, who taught philosophy at Rutgers University for 40 years before retiring. Much of his work has been on the nature of scientific knowledge, with numerous papers written about the nature of explanation, causation, and counterfactual reasoning. He's also written books, most recently on uncertainty and the philosophy of climate change, and just earlier this year, 2021, published another book titled Thinking While Walking. This book consists of a series of philosophical essays about our relationship to nature, each of which is located at a different trailhead along the Pacific Crest Trail. And it's this book which we'll be discussing today. So welcome onto the show, Professor Bunzel. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's your first time on the show, and I always like to get a guest just to do a, a little introduction uh, about themselves, maybe how you, um, how you kind of developed a, a connection with nature. I grew up in uh, London, the child of Jewish refugees from Vienna who fled in 38. <clears throat> I was born in 48, and I summered in the Lake District in the 1950s and developed this abiding love for the Lake District and the natural world that the Lake District gives us. It wasn't until later, by the way, that I learned that the Lake District has that look because it was heavily logged and grazed by farmers, but we can come back to that, that later. Uh, I started thinking about philosophy of science because I was interested in the social sciences and the questions that I asked as an undergraduate all had to do with the foundations of the social sciences. And so it was natural that I would uh, end up taking a, a PhD in, in philosophy, in philosophy of science. And I didn't really start thinking about the question of philosophy and its relationship to nature until I started thinking about climate change in, in, in around 2008. And questions about climate change and now more general questions about nature have preoccupied me since 2008. Today, we're talking about your most recent book, Thinking While Walking. Um, and before we get into the substance of the book, um, each of the essays is framed by a portion of the Pacific Crest Trail, which runs along the Cascade and Sierra Nevada mountains. What's your connection with this trail and these places that made you want to frame a whole book around it? Well, the trail starts about uh, 50 miles from my house at the Mexican border in a small town called Campo. And before you get to the Sierras, you have to slog across the Mojave Desert. And south of the Mojave Desert, there are various mountain ranges you go over. And so I was intrigued by it because I've walked along small sections of it near my house. And, you know, it's it's this in, in, incredible uh, construction. I mean, it, it start, people started building it in the 1930s, and it wasn't finished until... 1968, it's 2,650 miles long, all the way from the Mexican border to the Canadian border. And I just thought it might be enjoyable to walk along different sections of it. As I say in the introduction, I didn't hike the whole thing. I think there's something slightly crazed from my point of view of spending four months subjecting oneself to that challenge. And most people who hike it, hike it for very personal reasons, because they want to a challenge. I didn't want to do that. I discovered a long time ago that one of the ways to think creatively is to stroll and to allow your mind to wander just as you wander while you stroll, your mind then wanders as well. And in philosophy, you can often get some surprising connections of the mind when you're not thinking too rigorously and too hard. 
And so I wanted to put myself in nature in different settings, from the desert to the mountains, from the austerity of uh, the south to the overwhelming lushness of the north, and see what happened. I set myself different questions and then let my mind go as I spent a day or two at different trailheads. Taking advantage of something that uh, has been popping up in mental health research with regards to nature, the fact that nature has this kind of gentle fascination. It engages your intention because things are constantly moving, changing. There's something very, in some ways, relaxing or rejuvenating or some quality about that natural environment so that, that you've taken advantage of here. The setting frames philosophical discussions of environmental issues, ranging from things like the nature of litter to thinking about the morality of sacrificing the well-being of one species for a greater good. And I particularly liked this philosophical angle on these issues because I think um, in conservation and in environmental education, the framing of all these issues is almost always very strongly from this kind of objective scientific perspective. You know, it's supposed to be neutral. You just base it on the fact. You approach these issues in this book through this philosophical angle. What does philosophy have to add that might get missed out in a, a strictly objective scientific perspective? I think that there are two distinct things that philosophers can bring to the way in which we think about the environment and our relationship to the environment as well as the more specific question of climate change. The first is what comes to mind when most people think about philosophy, and that's the question of ethics. And uh, there are many issues of ethics that arise in the, in the context of this debate. Let me just mention two of them. Uh, one is, what do we include within the domain of ethics? Do we include just human beings or do we include some animals or all animals, and what are the consequences of how we draw the boundaries of what philosophers call things that have moral standing. But the second question that comes up that is more esoteric is that uh, philosophers of science like myself think about risk and the nature of risk and the way we think about risk. And one of the interesting things about risk is that we have a very well-developed model for everyday risks the risk of smoking and cancer, the risk of not wearing a seating belt and car safety. But we're very, very bad in thinking about risk for large-scale catastrophic events with small probability. And climate change is the example par excellence. I mean, if you go back to 2008, uh, some of the most important writers about climate, scientists were talking about the possibility of human extinction and human extinction of having a non-zero probability. Now, if you take a non-zero probability, however small that may be, as long as it's not zero, and multiply it by what philosophers call the disutility, the unpleasantness of extinction of all human beings, however small it is, it's something you want to avoid at all costs. If that's the right way to assess risk, we, we, should, we should not be taking any risk whatsoever of the consequences of climate change. Yet in our public policy decisions about all sorts of things, we do take such risks. And that leads me to believe that we have poor discourse about social risk and we have poor models of assessing it. So one of the things I'm trying to write about now is how we can think about the idea of 
risk associated with these large-scale catastrophic outcomes. I'll give you a flavor of it. Uh, I think about the distinction between what I call modular risk and non-modular risk. A non-modular risk is a risk that you can't test in the laboratory or in a controlled setting. You can only do it at scale, at global scale, to find out if it works and if it's safe. And I think solar radiation management, which is a technique people have proposed to reduce the amount of sunlight reaching the earth, is an example par excellence of non-modular risk. You can't test it in a laboratory. You can't curtain off a section of the atmosphere and see the consequences. And so we're faced with a very difficult decision in which uh, making a risk analysis of it is very, very hard to do. So those are two ways in which I think philosophers add to add to the debate. There's a, a, a third way in which I think we have something to say in conjunction with historians, which is that when scientists and when lay people think about the categories in which we think, we think that the categories that we think are in are universal, are ahistorical. And we blinker ourselves to just how historically specific the way in which we think is. And one of the things I'm interested in is how we arrived at a concept of nature that is very romantic and contrastive to the human made. And so a lot of the debates about the environment pose a natural way of doing things, a way that is harmonious with nature, with an artificial way of doing things. And I think that we need to question the assumptions underlying that distinction before we proceed in that debate. A lot of conservation and environment education, you, you start with this assumption that there is this distinction between something that's natural and something that's artificial. And within the kind of environmental movement, you really, you put a lot of value or you assume what's good is, is this so-called natural side of things without really interrogating it. And I think that's something that um, the first couple chapters of this book look at that that question in a couple of different angles. Maybe I could say one thing in re- uh, uh, about that assumption, which I think is discomforting when I, when I tell people about it. There's a wonderful book about North America before the white man comes. And I think it comes as a shock to most people to understand that the native people of North America ran most of the large mammals to extinction by overhunting and used large-scale burning to clear terrain all over the East Coast on a narrow band of the, of the West Coast. Um, I, I, we tend to make this contrast between the native people as having a harmonious relationship with nature and the people that come later as desecrating nature. It's certainly true the people who came later desecrated nature, but I think we have to be on guard on assuming that first peoples always have a harmonious relationship with nature. One of the themes of the book, however, is that this way of thinking about nature and thinking of our relationship to nature is not only a product of the Industrial Revolution, but it's also a product of wealth. A lot of debates about the environment, I think, are framed around the perspective of societies that are rich and people that are wealthy enough to be able to afford to contemplate cutting back on their consumption, using less energy, living a less material life. And I think people forget that of the 7.8 
billion people in the world, 6.5 billion don't have that luxury. They live in varying degrees of poverty. So for them, the, the idea of you know, cutting back to save the world is a preposterous proposition. And I think in educating people about the environment, we have to take that into account. One of the themes through this book is thinking about how should we make decisions. And one of the things that philosophical thought experiments tend to do just as an observation, is that they tend to posit the person who is making the choice is, it's kind of this abstracted person. But when you try and put that decision-making entity, when when you translate that into the real world, as you say, not everyone is in the same position. The consequences for taking one choice or another is not the same for everyone who makes it. Well, I'd like to make a distinction between a thought experiment that a philosopher is using versus another context, because philosophers use thought experiments to try and show that there are erroneous assumptions driving an argument. One of my favorite quotes from Bertrand Russell is that the goal of philosophy is what he calls the substitution of articulate hesitation for inarticulate certainty. And so a lot of what we philosophers do is try and show people things that they are cocksure about in starting an argument are not something they should take for granted because they lead to a consequence that's the exact opposite of what they think it leads to, leads to inconsistent results. But when we think about thinking from a broader policy perspective as opposed to a philosophical perspective, your idea is completely correct. It's extremely important to situate the thinker in the context of people in their real lives and how they make choices. I'll give you an example, if I may, that also comes from the book. If you think of people in India or in Bangladesh who are subject to to flooding, and uh, you think about it from the comfort of your home in London or here in La Jolla, you think, well, surely they care about future generations, their offspring. They don't want climate change any more than we do because their offspring, they want their offspring to survive. But if you live in a river in India that is prone to flooding and you consider the value of um, building your house higher so that you can survive flooding, what you're thinking about is the short range, not the long range. If you think about living in India or Bangladesh and you think about future generations, what you're really thinking about is Are my immediate offspring going to be able to survive to have children and for them to have children? And it's not clear to me in the real world, if we look at the real energy choices we have, that someone in that situation in India is not rational to say, I'm willing to risk climate change to have more energy if the only energy available to me is fossil fuel. Because if my child does not survive to be 21 and reproduce, there will be no future generations. So I'll risk climate change in the long term for survivability. Now, if you're secure in the West, you'll say, oh, but you could use renewable energy. And this is what I think is a grievous error in public discourse about climate change in the West. People fall prey to what I think of as a mythical third alternative. 
that if I only try hard enough tomorrow, we can have all of the renewable energy that we need. And it's just unwillingness to do that is preventing us from doing that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad that there's been this uh, very strong upwelling in the environmental movement about environmental justice. So where you really think about the fact that there are going to be these different consequences, not just for, for climate change, but also that efforts to tackle climate change have different implications for different people around the world. So I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, we've we've been in this transition away from coal for quite some time now, but that has had really serious consequences for some, for coal mining communities where the tr transition away from use of that resource has not been replaced with anything. You know, if, if you were to look at it from, I'm going to say an environmentalist from maybe the 90s, they would say, yes, this is great. We're stopping using coal. We're tackling this problem. Air pollution's going down. We're reducing our carbon emissions. And that's kind of the end of the story. But today, you know, 20, 30 years on, the environmental movement is is starting to ask these questions of like, okay, if we stop doing this, how do we actually make that transition happen? Yes. I Although I think the coal miner case is, you can have your cake and eat it too. In a just society, you would give coal miners a living wage until they were able to find alternative jobs. And if they didn't, you would support them for the rest of your life. I think the more pressing problem of climate justice that I don't think gets talked about by people concerned with climate justice is the energy needs of poor people in the world and whether there exist immediate alternatives to the use of fossil fuels. And it's a pressing concern. 8.7 million people, 8.7 million people died of fossil fuel pollution in 2018. I'll say something unpopular for your audience, I suspect. No one died from nuclear energy in that time. And I think the only way in the short term, and I'm talking 10 years, to try and begin to satisfy energy demand, and particularly demand when wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining, is to look again at nuclear energy. Here, here we come back around to thinking about the nature of risk, because of course, when you're talking about transitioning away from fossil fuels and into using something, an alternative like nuclear, but the byproduct of that is a hazardous waste material that is going to be around for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years that poses a non-zero risk of significantly harming, at the very least, the communities around wherever that material ends up being stored. Well, it's certainly true that nuclear fission as opposed to nuclear fusion, which is not available as yet, but maybe become available, <clears throat> does produce hazardous waste and hazardous waste poses a risk. But again, it's important to note that the risk that hazardous wastes pose is not a global catastrophic risk that could produce extinction. It can produce, it certainly can produce local risk with local consequences. And we have to look very carefully at where we would put that material, who would bear the risk of it, and the issues of justice associated with it. There's, there's no doubt about that. Human beings, uh, we are now at the stage where if we carry on with business as usual, human beings are not going to go extinct. 80% of species are going to go extinct, but we're not going to go extinct. We will suffer sea level rise, which means that in rich countries, 
A lot of builders will get wealthy building new towns inland and everything will be fine. But I think the risk to the Southern Hemisphere, I think the risk to non-white populations in the world who live in poorer areas on, on in general, in Africa and in low-lying Asian areas, is incalculably higher than the risk of nuclear energy. But, the, but it has to be worked out, for, for sure. A couple of chapters touch on this question of how do we deal with this? Uh, how do we justify, perhaps, um, or can we justify doing harm to a few things for some notion of a greater good? Which is one taking a look at approaching the question from kind of taking a broader view in the present, but you also devote a chapter to sacrificing something now for a distant future long-term good. Could you talk me through some of the thinking around those? Your listeners are going to have to come along with me by allowing me to posit that there is no free lunch in dealing with climate change. Uh, it isn't as though we can stop the effects of climate change without doing some damage along the way, because it isn't as though we can say no more fossil fuels, we'll just do renewable energy and everything will be fine. So that's the first point I want to make. Second point I want to make is that given prospective developing world demand and the legitimate interests of people in the developing world to have very little of what we have, to have a washing machine, to have a refrigerator, to have an electric bicycle, which is transformative their life, a light, a light so that their children could study at night. There's no way we can sacrifice our energy and give it to them because there are too few of us and too many of them. Again, there are 1.5 million a billion of us and 6.5 or 6.3 billion of them. Divided up, they still don't have any energy. So I think that we are bound to have to develop the technology to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The question of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere has to attend to the fact that the amount that has to be removed is gigantic. For every part per million of carbon dioxide that you want to go down, you have to remove 8 billion, with a B, tons of carbon dioxide. 8 billion. One of the ways to try and do that is to increase the capacity of the seawater to absorb carbon dioxide by putting lime into it, which will change its pH value, because the more acidic it is, the less carbon dioxide it, it, it absorbs. And one of the most effective ways to do that is to take it, do it in areas of ocean upwelling, because in areas of ocean upwelling, where cold water rises very quickly to the surface, you get an enormous amount of degassing of carbon dioxide. So instead of removing human carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, we can reduce the amount that the oceans degas carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere by putting lime in there. But those areas where 
upwelling occurs, and they're all along the California coast here, for example, where I live, are nurseries for developing biota, for living, living systems within the ocean. And if you suddenly change the pH value, you're going to stress those creatures and make it very hard for them to survive. Now, you may say, well, then we shouldn't do it. But remember, we're on track to drive 80% of species to extinction. Someone's, you might be tempted to say, well, we shouldn't doing it. Causing bad things to happen to produce good things, even if they're good things, is, is not acceptable. As you say in the book, in a couple of places, I interrogate that assumption. And I'll give you a frame to think about this by, by switching the subject, but it's parallel to this. A lot of doctors think that there is a difference between letting a patient die because you're not acting and killing a patient in which you're acting because we've been raised with the idea that there is an important moral difference between not causing harm by by intervening to do something versus standing back and letting something happen. We think there's a difference in that regard. But I think that's mistaken when it comes to medical practice. If it's all right not to save a patient for their own good, if you think it's better for them to die because they're in great pain, and it's better for them to die by withdrawing treatment, then it ought to be better for them to die by helping them die actively. If one is right, then the other is right. The two go hand in hand as far as I can see. I think that in thinking about the environment, people are hung up on this because they tend to think that we should stop doing anything bad but we can't intervene in a way that might do something temporarily bad for the greater good at the out, at the at at the back end and i think that is a a poorly examined assumption i think it's very painful to say i think i think the biological question that's the important question is if you have to do damage if you can't not do damage because there is no magical solution then at least look to the species that are not central to many other species. I mean, if you look in the sea, there are some species that are the bottom of the food chain all the way up to the top. If they go extinct, then you're, you're screwing many, many different species. There are other interventions where you may inadvertently cause extinction of a species, but that species is not a central species to others. These are very, very difficult questions, and I admit very controversial questions, but I see no alternative to to assessing them. Yeah, and I was going to say that this is something that I quite like about the book is that none of the chapters, they don't really give you a prescription. You know, they don't say, we're going to analyze our options, therefore, this is what you must do. Throughout the book, what you're actually doing is you're posing questions and you are bringing up examples and, and sort of philosophical thought experiments. And it's raising questions and saying that, okay, if you make this assumption, let's apply that assumption to this other situation. What are the consequences? And and then what do you think about those consequences? And then each chapter kind of just ends. <laughs> For some people, they might find that kind of unsatisfying. They, they want a solution, that kind of thing. This approach of just posing a question, looking at the consequences of your assumptions is is quite valuable because it does just that it makes you think about your assumptions and revisit them so that you can come to some kind of a conclusion and and that's a question that i wanted to ask you people do need to come to conclusions and make decisions eventually how should people use philosophy and philosophical thinking 
to approach making a decision? I'm not sure that's a fair question because I don't think, as you pointed out, it's the business of philosophy to answer those questions. It's the business of philosophy to explicate the hidden assumptions that you may be making. It's the business of philosophy to try and show how you might be inadvertently involved in a contradiction. And it's the business of philosophy to lay out a way to approach assessing situations, particularly from a moral point of view. But it's not the job of philosophy to make those decisions. I'm not like Plato in believing in philosopher kings. You know, these are decisions that have to be made in in the public forum. And I would be remiss if I if I told people how how to do it. Uh, I'm not an economist. Not that economists are necessarily the right people to make the decisions as well. These are collective decisions we need to make. And to the extent that there is prescription in here, the prescription is, if you're going to make those decisions, shake yourself free of your rich, entitled, comfortable life in Britain or the United States and make sure you think from the point of view and involve, more importantly, people who live in poor countries and let them be involved in these collective decisions particularly with environmental issues, we're dealing with things on large scales. These aren't really individual decisions. They, they are collective decisions. So if you're making a collective decision, make sure that the collective is on board in thinking about that decision and, and having their input be in there and be heard. Let me just say, I mean, that's a very important point because when you're doing education, you know, there's an inclination to, to teach people how they can make individual changes in their lives. But the sad fact is there's very little you or I can do individually that will make a, a, a significant outcome to the quandary we have. These have to be, as you say, collective decisions and not just collective decisions at a national level. They have to be collective decisions globally by the global community. So there's another angle to to this doing uh, some kind of limited harm or limited in some way for some notion of a greater good. And it's something you bring up in a chapter about conserving nature and it's a particular version of nature. So you talk about John Muir. And when you're talking about conservation in national parks in the United States, you're kind of preserving certain parks. You're, you're preserving essentially what John Muir saw. In conservation, this is something that often happens when you're talking about protecting a habitat. What you're really doing or in the management of it is essentially you're freezing it as a certain version of, of what that place can look like. And this also has the effect of causing harm to some species to, to benefit a certain privileged community of them. So this is particularly the case in wetland conservation or if you're preserving a wetland habitat, you want to keep it as a wetland. But the natural progression for a wetland, if if you took humans completely out of the picture, that habitat would, over time, you know, it would become a meadow as it fills up with silt and then become a, a woodland and then a, a full-blown forest over time. This is usually how this would work, in, especially at temperate latitudes. And yet, within conservation, we we've picked a particular point in saying, okay, this is what we want. And that has the effect of benefiting that wetland community but at the expense of uh, the potential meadow community. What, what does philosophy have to say about picking what we think of as a natural state and, and then holding it in place? Yeah, this is a fabulous issue, and it raises a, a lot of deep issues. I don't want to be too mechanistic about what philosophy has to say versus other things to say. I think that um, what I try and do in the book as far as philosophy is concerned with regard to these kinds of questions is to 
is to question again our assumption of the givenness of nature and the, the categories of nature. To be fancy about it, the world does not come with categories. Immanuel Kant is right. We project categories to divide up the world into its parts and things. And we do so relative to our interests. The other point I want to make is that I'm an atheist, but if I believed in God, Darwin would be my God. And natural selection is what I think we disrespect when we try and freeze nature. We don't realize that natural selection means change is inevitable. And we dress up our anthropocentric desire to keep something the way it is because we like the way it makes us feel, the, makes us feel comfortable in it, uh, and dress it up as though we're doing something fancy to protect nature by privileging the status quo living things in favor of what would come if they left the stage and left niches open for other things to evolve. That's a rather hard-nosed response because, you know, when I hike the Pacific Crest Trail and see the, the beetles that are decimating billions of trees, my inclination is to say, let's get rid of these goddamn beetles and save the trees. In a way, we're left with our anthropocentric interests as the only thing to guide us, it seems to me. And so my only plea is that um, two things. We should be aware of the degree to which that guides us. You know? Anthropocentrism. But, anthropocentrism, a focus mm -hmm. on human interests. Again, to go back to where we started, you know, when I drive north of here to San Francisco between Santa Cruz and San Francisco, we have the same rolling barren hills that remind me of the Lake District. And it's hard for me to remind myself that's a man-made or human-made and curated environment. We just have to be aware of the degree to which we are intervening and understand its limits. And we will, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will, will reap what we've, what we've wrought in a very different world from the world that we have. But I, I, I don't think we should believe that it's going to be a barren world. It will, it will be a world in which some species will thrive and, and some won't. I think the variety of species will go down and that's bad from a biological point of view because variety is good from the point of view of accommodating changes and being able to exploit them. But it doesn't have philosophical significance unless you believe that all these species have rights or you believe nature has rights. You know, I, I, in the book, I make fun of some biologists or organizations that say all living things have rights. And I have a riff there where I, when I say, I, you know, I'm the representatives of the, the virus liberation executive because we're engaged in a genocide against these viruses. And if you think viruses don't live, same with regard to bacteria. Of course, I don't think that. It's a reductio ad absurdum, which is another philosophical trick. But I think once you recognize that, if you are hard-nosed about it, it's not easy, I think, to give rights to a whole variety of different animals. And I think it's incoherent to say nature has rights. But that does then rise, give rise to, I think, you know, something that I have thought about and I hadn't thought about until I did start strolling on the Pacific Crest Trail, which is if nature doesn't have rights, then how can we be said to have do, a duty to nature, a duty not to desecrate nature, except if it's anthropocentric, a duty to each other?
I don't want to have a duty just to each other because for all I know, we may, we may become more Philistine than we are and say we don't care at all about nature. So I want to have an account of nature that doesn't depend on us and an account that makes sense of a notion of duty to nature without nature having rights. But I don't think you can do that. There's a section in the book in which I go through an epiphany and realize that I've mistitled the book. The title of the book shouldn't be Thinking While Walking, it should be Experiencing While Walking. I'm in the northern part of the Pacific Crest Trail in the, in the northern Cascades in Washington. If your listeners ever have give a chance, I mean, it's, uh, it's so beautiful. And I'm walking there and I'm overwhelmed and I start crying at the beauty and I don't cry easily. And I'm crying at the beauty and I'm filled with awe And that awe inspires humility in me. And I suddenly realized, you know, I've had this all backwards. I've been thinking, thinking I can generate a duty based on philosophical reasoning. But if I stop thinking and just experience, the environment fills me with these emotions, which gives rise to these thoughts of humility, which is where I wanted to end up in the the first place. And as I say in the book, you know, this is, a somewhat, quote, Eastern idea of humility as opposed to a Western idea. A Western idea is humility is I'm awful, I'm terrible, I must fall on my knees in the face of a greater being like God. And that's not what this is about. This is about just allowing yourself to be one with your environment. And when you are one with your environment, then hopefully you will have these feelings. I say hopefully because if I think of taking a teenager with me, I fear the teenager may shrug and say, well, <laughs> big deal. Let me go back to my, 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 my phone about this. And I make a point at the end that I think is, is important, which is I say, this is not necessarily an individual matter. This is a cultural matter. One of the other arrogances that we suffer from is that we think that all of our thoughts are under our control of our own making, that we're independent beings. But we're much more the product of the cultures we grow up in. And so what we should really aspire to is a culture that values this notion of presence in the face of nature, the ability to experience in the face of nature, and the values that it inculcates. And certainly, I can't speak for Britain. I haven't lived there for 50 years. But but certainly in the United States, We have a dearth of that with the ideology of individualism, whatever the reality may be. While in other countries, not just in the East, but I can think of other countries not in the East as well, they have managed in their cultures to evoke a collective value towards nature that does in fact infuse people with a kind of behavior of humbleness in the face of nature that I think is our only hope in the long run if we're not going to desecrate nature. In the 80s, there was this move of like, okay, get outdoors, go out camping, you experience nature. That's how we do do with it. Since the 2000s or so, I think environmental education has had a really big swing into the science mode. And it's like, right, if people just understand the mechanics of nature, then they'll see why it's so important to protect it because they understand how these ecosystems produce food or purify water or that kind of thing. And in the last few years, we've been swinging back around again 
to uh, wanting to get kids just to reconnect with nature. So we're just like, just spend time outside. It's interesting how these things come and go. But now environmental education feels like, right, we want to tackle this issue of how people relate with nature from every angle. We want the science angle. We want the lived experience kind of epiphany moment example, that deep connection through direct experience with nature angle. So it's it is good that this this book does approach these environmental issues from all these different ways, because you do bring in scientific moments, you do bring in philosophical quandaries to further analyze the assumptions that we're using to base our experiences on. But then you also have the narratives of walking the Pacific Crest Trail and what that experience is like. At some point in the book, I talk about the bifurcation of human beings from nature that arises, as I said, around the time of the Industrial Revolution so that we come to see, quote, man, human beings versus nature, man outside nature. And it came as a great shock to me to learn that when John Muir curated the Yosemite National Park, he engineered the eviction of the indigenous people who lived there because he didn't want humans to be there, particularly humans that were pretty messy in the way they they lived in nature. He wanted nature to be pure, and his concept of the purity of nature was that it was untouched by man. And to me, this speaks of a, a kind of delusion in which gives rise to these binaries we talked about of this us versus nature, instead of the recognition that we are part of nature, we are in nature, everything we do is in that sense natural, even down to the plastics that we dump in the ocean. It's not an option that we are outside nature. The question is how we comport ourselves in nature, how we live in nature, what we do in nature, how we relate to the rest of nature. But there is no nature that is independent of us. The last question that I had relating to all of this and about how we should approach making decisions is you've mentioned a couple of times about having contradictions crop up in, in thinking. And so I have this this wonder about how if we have had a line of reasoning and come to a conclusion at one point in our lives, should we not continue to revisit, maybe not continually, but frequently revisiting that conclusion, rethinking through in light of growing up, experiencing life, getting new information, and then thinking through everything again, seeing if I come to the same conclusion? Well, again, I'm not sure uh, if these are necessarily philosophical questions, if I make an argument that two plus two equals four by logical deduction, and it's analytically true, then I don't need to revisit that particular conclusion. Um, To the extent that I achieve knowledge through observing the world, empirical knowledge, I always have to be open to revision. I mean, one of the lessons from philosophy of science is that the nature of scientific inquiry or any observational data is that it's always open to revision. We can never be fully confident about it. So I think you're right to say that we should always be open to revision about that. Is a philosophical question conclusion also open to revision? Is it the kind of thing where you can approach it analytically like two plus two and you come to a conclusion? Or is it because of, well, let's take maybe a moral question. Is that something that you should come back and and revisit? 
and revise, even if it is internally logically consistent? Well, I think it depends on on what we're dealing with, and I, I, I you know, I think that I think moral questions have a lot of issues to do with how we think about them foundationally. I think part of what you're raising is the question of whether or not we illicitly try and smuggle issues that are non-philosophical into philosophical discourse, because a lot of what you are raising has to do with values and our values that can change. Philosophy doesn't deal with values. Philosophy deals with thinking and thinking in part when it has to do with values, with moral theory. I don't I'm not interested philosophically in the question about whether or not abortion is morally justified or not morally justified. I'm interested in a methodology about how we can think about that issue and what the relevant considerations are. So I don't think philosophy gets you to substantive conclusions, as it were, of the kind that I think you are concerned about. And I think the things you are concerned about legitimately always merit re-examination. The question is whether or not the methodology philosophy offers you is, um, if true at any time, true at other times as well. And uh, I can't say that. I hope we're making progress in our ability to do that. But I wanted to say something else that I think underlies your question that is, in a sense, an unexamined assumption. In addition to thinking we are masters or mistresses of the own, our own, the content of our thoughts when much of it comes from social processes, accretion through our exposure to others in the society. We also live with the illusion that our conscious thinking brains are in command and control of the rest of our body and the rest of our brains. But in fact, much of what we think about is in fact an ex post facto rationalization of a conclusion that we've arrived at through processes that are not available to our conscious thinking. The wonderful research to do with um, scanning people's brains as they're exposed to images of people in which they're asked to make judgments about their reliability or honesty or trustworthiness. And if you scan, you can see crudely speaking, emotional centers of the brain engaging before conscious areas of the brain exposed. So people, when they meet other people, actually come to a conclusion of trustworthiness emotionally based on all kinds of judgments, which, by the way, end up implicating implicit racism in it as well. And then they have an ex post facto rationalization to explain it to themselves. So I think we need to be... um, careful to think about how we think, how the contents of our mind, our thought come to us, and be a lot more skeptical about how reliable the conclusions we arrive are. So I do think that in that regard, always questioning is a good slogan by which to live, although it (laughs) drives my family crazy. (laughs) They keep saying at the dinner table, this is not a graduate seminar, you know. Yes. Yeah. My my partner has similar difficulties with me in attempting to discuss these things. Thank you very much for that. And this book is full of tricky questions and it's been great um, having this conversation with you. Thank you very much for coming on to the show today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And I hope you listeners have gotten something out of this discussion as well. If you are interested in 
more information about this book, um, I will put some information on it in the description of this show. Uh, and you can also find more information in the full show notes, which are on the website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress. And Martin, if people wanted to find out more about yourself or if they wanted to get in touch in some way, is, is there a best way for people to do that? Yeah, the best way is to go to my website, www.mbunzl, M-B-U-N-Z-L or Z-L, Dot com. You can find out how to get to the book. And I write a weekly blog in which I philosophize about issues of current interest. Most recent postings had to do with what I call uh, low bar libertarianism, people who decline to get vaccinated against COVID and then expect the hospital system to take care of them. And uh, you can always reach me at mail at mbunzel.com. I will read your mail and I will try to respond to anyone who writes to me as long as you're not too mean. And I'll put all of that information in the show notes. So once again, thank you very much, Professor Bunzel, for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs>